6, 8, 1 through 8, and 16 through 18. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you do, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearances so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Good to see you guys uh, tonight. Uh, I want to start by telling you or reading you this story about a guy in 1999 in a rural city in uh, India. His name was Sanju Bhagath. Uh, He was 36 years old. And it was strange to his friends uh, that he seemed pregnant. Sanju was always concerned about his big stomach, but he went on with life, assuming that that's just sort of the lot he had in life. He always had discomfort and pain. People would notice him everywhere he went because of his humongous, bloated stomach. He realized something was wrong, though, when his stomach started growing even bigger. One night when he felt excruciating pain and was rushed to the hospital in an ambulance, the doctors diagnosed a tumor, and they prepared a serious operation. But the tumor was so big that it was pressing on his diaphragm and it made him almost incapable of breath. Dr. Mehta of the Tata Memorial Hospital in Mumbai, who operated on Sanju, said, because of the sheer size of the tumor, it makes it extremely difficult for us to operate. We're anticipating lots of problems. He also said that he can usually spot a tumor just after he begins operation. But while operating on Sanju, Dr. Mehta saw something he had never expected. As he cut open Sanju's stomach to remove the tumor, a lot of fluid spilled out. And then something very weird happened. Dr. Mehta said, to my surprise and horror, something shook hands with me. It was a bit shocking. One of the doctors involved in this operation said, I just put my hand inside and felt that there were a lot of bones. First one limb came out, then some part of genitalia came, and then some part of hair, some limbs, jaws, and hair. Dr. Mehta said, the team of doctors and I were extremely confused, horrified, and amazed. It looked as if Sanju Bhagat had given birth, and what was removed from his stomach was actually the mutated body of his twin brother. Sanju had suffered the most strange of medical conditions called fetus in fetu. 
Now, here's why I begin with that. This man, he had no idea what was inside of him. He had no idea what was going on, but it was killing him. See, if you come to Jesus with all of your pain and with all of the difficult brokenness in and around your story, he's actually really gentle and really loving and the kindest of surgeons. And he will come, you can come to him bleeding out and he will sew you up and heal all of the broken wounds in your life. But once he begins to heal you, he says, follow me. Take your whole life and follow me. And the beginning of his invitation sounds incredibly appealing to almost everybody. But the second part sounds a bit untasteful. And the reason is because we think, are you really asking me, Jesus, uh, to be like one of those people who are weird and parade around uh, and all their spiritual actions, broadcasting and tweeting all sorts of prayers all over their Facebook all the time on their Twitter and their Instagram. And you know what Jesus says to that? He says, no, don't be like one of those. Those people have a huge tumor inside them that they don't even recognize is killing them. And the tumor is this, it's spiritual inauthenticity. You know, if you've been with us, we've been clarifying Christianity week to week and trying to make sense really what the the genuine nature of this faith is. And tonight, Jesus is actually going to really help uh, those of us who are skeptical and cynical, because if you're skeptical and cynical, you've probably at some point had a cynical or skeptical thought about the disconnect that it genuinely feels is always present between those who claim to love Jesus and what their actual life is like. And we say, when I look and see this, there's no way that this can be true and I can believe this. And what we're going to clarify tonight is Jesus echoes your frustration and says, I agree. It's absolutely not part of those who, it's not part of my kingdom. It's not meant to be part of those who are following me. And so here's the question for you tonight, if you're listening, is are you authentic? Are you an authentic, genuine believer like Jesus is after? in this entire sermon that he's trying to clarify. And so uh, let's answer that question by looking at three things. One, counterfeit spirituality. Two, then let's look at true spirituality. And three, let's look at what will actually make the difference between the two. So first, counterfeit spirituality. Uh, A counterfeit is somebody who uses something to distract you from from what they really are. I mean, Jesus says this in verse one, if you can look up there, he says, uh, beware of false practices. He's saying, beware of being, beware of being counterfeit. That is, being a Christian uh, has almost an intrinsic pull sometimes to lead a counterfeit life. Now, what makes it counterfeit? He tells us in uh, verses one and five. He says, or excuse me, verse five, let's just look at this one. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. See, what uh, marks counterfeit spirituality is that it is after after recognition for the purpose of establishing establishing a reputation. Like, see, the motivation of a counterfeit spirituality is it's never to be godly. It's always to be thought of of being godly. 
It's, it's to use Christianity to get something that you actually really want in life. And we commonly do this with social groups or with music or with grades or with careers or with possessions, that we use this so that people will think something is great about us. And Jesus is saying, it is absolutely possible to begin to follow me and to say all the things about me and to do the exact same thing. And he makes this really vivid for us with this illustration he gives three times in verse two, again in verse five and verse 16 with this word, hypocrite. Now this is the word that everybody wants to use to describe the discrepancy between what we believe and how we're actually living. But it's a common word for us, but Jesus here is actually drawing on an image because the actual Greek word he uses was used of actors. Uh, Actors were hypocrites because when they would act, they didn't use makeup. They would wear masks uh, to play a part and to be seen in a role. And there were two types of masks that they would use. Uh, Some were obviously distinct from who they were, like it was a huge, loud a uh, big thing that distinguished them as a character. And the other ones that they would wear were these sort of subtle, quiet masks where you could barely tell the difference actually between the person and the mask and the part that they were playing. And it's the latter that Jesus is actually talking about here. And he's saying, look, when you begin to follow me, uh, it is altogether possible to begin to live a life that looks different and no one can tell it's different but it's not different at all. And he gives three examples of where this is even possible that extends beyond these examples. But he gives these three here in giving in verse two and then praying in verse five and then fasting in verse 16. And he says, you can do all these things that seem so godly, that seem like a Christian, but actually appearance is not representative of reality at all. One of the most fascinating uh, Americans, whether you maybe positively or negatively put, to me was uh, Frank Abagnale. Uh, if you don't know who he was, he was the most successful fraudulent person uh, in the 20th century. He began in 1966 and successfully wrote over $2.5 million worth of check frauds. He began to get bored with that, so he moved on to other ventures of fraudulent life and just started stealing money in uh, particular ways that were fun to him. Uh, One time he just dressed up in a security guard outfit, stood uh, by a bank, and somebody handed him a bag of $300,000, and he just walked to his car with it. One time he uh, decided he wanted to be an airplane pilot, put on a, a, a uniform, got on a plane, and he even flew a plane at 30,000 feet with no training whatsoever. And the FBI, when they finally finally caught him and investigated him, said uh, in all of his ventures, and especially his check fraud, uh, they could not tell the difference between uh, what was real and what was fraudulent. And Jesus says it is very possible and sometimes intrinsically likely for us to be tempted to live the Christian life in the same way, like you're living the the movie, Catch Me If You Can. And the thematic tie between all of it, whether you're praying, you're giving money, or you're fasting, is that it's all for you. It's that the reason you do these things is that it will build yourself 
a reputation and convince yourself that you're living a worthy life. Now, why is that bad? Well, it's bad for two reasons. A, it's really bad for those who want to come to faith and are considering coming to faith in Christ. See, if you don't get in touch with this danger, uh, you can make the mistake in thinking that you have become a Christian when actually all you've ever done is exchange uh, your pursuit of a reputation and a life for yourself with all of the secular things you used to do now with all of the spiritual things now that you're doing. And I, I want you to know, listen, if you're considering faith or your friends are considering faith, please know Jesus does not want you to come to faith and start living life like a CrossFitter, you know, or, or a vegan. Um, you know how you know somebody's doing CrossFit? It's because you can't know, because they tell you in every way they possibly can. I'm not like, no, CrossFit's great. Get in shape, do your thing. But it's very possible uh, to think you have become a Christian and to still live for yourself, even with all of the habits. And so if you're not in tune to this, you can spiritually deceive yourself. But it's also dangerous for those of you who call yourself Christians and are trying to figure out how to grow your faith. Because if a reputation is all you want, look what Jesus says in verse one. It says, if you practice your righteousness before men to be noticed, you will get, you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Saying, if you want the reputation, that's all you'll get. And you know what that will do? It, it will lead you to hate the Christian things while still trying to be a Christian. Like everything Jesus calls you to, it will never be uh, the whisper of freedom. It will always be the shout of slavery. And you then will never be able to handle the failures and the struggle to measure up. And so here's why it's bad is counterfeit spirituality. It's not just wrong, it's miserable. And it is something that will keep you from ever coming to faith or it will keep you from really flourishing in the Christian faith. And Jesus wants to clarify for us what that is. So secondly, though, uh, he wants us to move beyond that and discover what true spirituality is. See, real, authentic, true spirituality, it's not done for a reputation. It's done differently for the joy and knowledge and pleasure of God himself. And you know what it looks like? It looks like this simple phrase I'll give you tonight, humble habits. Uh, let me unpack those for you um, in, bo in both words. Uh, a, habits. I, I would like you to notice the way Jesus talks to us about uh, giving, praying, and fasting. Did you notice he, he says, when you give to the poor? And then again in verse five, so when you pray, and then again in verse 16, when you fast, he doesn't say uh, if you do these things. He says when you begin to do these things. It's as if Jesus assumes that when you call on him, and you call yourself a Christian, and you make God the center of your life, you will begin to practice these things. And it tells us this, listen, while you can be fake and do these actions, you can't demonstrate no actions and be real. It's, it's sort of like this. Uh, you're not an athlete just because you're going to the gym. Uh, just in the same way you're not a Christian for just doing Christian things, 
But if you never go to the gym, it's impossible to be an athlete. And so if you're following Jesus, look, these habits, these things, practices about what we do with our money and who we cry out to in the world and how we sort of meditate and focus and get alone with in this world, uh, that is an un, those are unavoidable activities. And if you become a Christian, God will inherently begin to invade those. But when we do those habits, what makes them really true and authentic is when they're done with humility. Notice what Jesus says in verse three and four. He says it about giving here, but it really applies to really the whole of what he's talking about here. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That is, we shouldn't just do stuff are impressed, and we shouldn't avoid the idea of just impressing others, but we also shouldn't do stuff that is for impressing ourselves. That is, sometimes we, we seek applause of others, but sometimes we want to go after our own personal applause. And what true spirituality does is it doesn't go after applause at all, but it goes out into those things because you have been given applause in the gospel. See, the gospel works this way, and Jesus has been sort of tying it in this entire passage, uh, even before and now, that the gospel works like God's approval comes to you by grace, and grace alone, not because of anything that you've done, not because of any inclination you had, not because of any spiritual habits you're beginning, and he called you his child, and he calls you his, and he makes you his own permanently, and that's never, ever taken away by, it, by the faithful days or the unfaithful days. And when that begins to happen to you, uh, you begin to realize, hey, I don't have to begin to live this life and the life I'm called to live to earn anything, but I do it because of what I've been given. And so when that's true, then you can begin to go into these things, not broadcasting it to anybody and not wearing it on any sort of sleeve, but doing it in a sense normally. Nobody talked about it better than C.S. Lewis uh, when he talks about humility. He says, listen, humility is not somebody who you're talking to and you say, you know, Alex, you are just the smartest, most hilarious, most interesting guy I've ever met. And I just go, oh, no, I'm not. You know, I'm not that great at all. Or, uh, you know, and I just try to deflect the uh the compliments, so I don't sound like I'm taking them too seriously. Lewis says, that's not humility at all. That's somebody who's so insecure and so lacking of confidence that they have to pretend that what you're doing when you're building them up is actually not building them up, and they have to be inauthentic to receive the great thing that you're giving them. He says, what humility will do is that so rarely you'll get to the point where you're... uh, complimenting me because I'm so interested in you and I'm talking to you about what's going on with you so much that when you even talk to me about me, I'm not playing the game in my head that goes, did she mean that? Was that serious? Or is she telling me that just to make me feel better? Is she making up for last time when she thought she complimented me, but she didn't compliment and she actually insulted me and I walked away and gave her the silent treatment for two weeks. None of those games exist in humility. Because all what the humble heart does is just think, 
this person in front of me is so interesting and they're so great and they're so wonderful. How can I just care for them and get to know them better? And Jesus says, when you are ravished in the gospel, that mentality will begin to pour over into things like giving and praying and fasting. And you'll do it. Why? Just to love others and to love God. Uh, I love golf. Some of you know that. And really, it's a, a hard sport to really get a hold of because there's so many mechanics. My wife is frustrated about this, but I've probably spent a couple hundred dollars on DVDs over the years, uh, swearing that this will actually help me learn to putt, promising that this will make me swing like Tiger Woods. And all of it's sort of been in vain because when I get on the course, um, because I don't play enough, I'm like literally thinking about the video as I'm doing things. And so when you're thinking about it, of course, there's like 10 other things that you're forgetting. And it just begins to be clumsy and awkward and messed up. And it feels like the whole video that I bought and purchased was utterly a waste of time. But the best person to ever do it, probably Jack Nicholas, said in one of his books, he said, here's the trick to learning how to swing a golf club well. You don't stand over it and think, is my weight doing well? Are my hips pointed the right way? Am I taking the club far enough back? Is my elbow tweaked enough? Are my shoulders parallel? He says, no, no, no. You stop thinking about you. And what authentic spirituality begins to do is it begins to be so focused and so caught up in God's love for you that when you do the life that God calls you to do, you do it with such freedom and joy and humility because it's not about you and you just don't think about you. And that's what humble habits are. And that's the mark of true spirituality. So that's counterfeit spirituality. That's true spirituality. But thirdly, what will make the difference between those two? Jesus says it 10 times in this passage. He says over and over and over again, your father. You know, do you know no one had talked about God this way before Jesus came along? No one ever called God father. All throughout the Old Testament, he's called Yahweh. He's called the Lord. He's called the creator. But when Jesus comes along, he introduces this very intimate way of knowing God. And that's really the heart of the gospel, that we can call him father. And this is really what begins to distinguish counterfeit spirituality and true spirituality. Because counterfeit spirituality always has God as a professor. And authentic true spirituality always has God as a father. See, if God is a professor, what it will do is it means uh, the Christian life is something to be done. And a professor expects you to do that job satisfactory. And if you do, then you get the reward. But fathers are so different to their children than professors are to students. See, a, a father can look at something that a professor would call a failure and say, that was beautiful. That was a precious effort. That was something I'll hold fast. I remember when my oldest son, Witt, was in a, a kindergarten. Uh, the teacher was teaching him how to write his full name. And his full name is Alexander Whitfield Watlington. And so he wrote it on a paper. And here's how he wrote Alexander. A-L-I-G-Z-A-N-D-R. Alexander. No vowel on the end there. 
Now, a professor would absolutely go uh, F. But as his father, I mean, I, I just thought that was the sweetest thing ever to the point that I took it home and it's framed in my house. See, when God is your father, whatever you go after him with in giving and praying and fasting, he never comes back at you and says, it's not enough. Do it a bit, do it again, do it better. Edit it, come back with excellence. He's a father that frees you up to realize, hey, these things are not things to perform. It's intimacy to begin to grow and know him better. And if you know this, then it will produce two types of persons. See, the counterfeit person who thinks God is a professor, you will always try to meet the standard and you will always be exhausted and you will always be frustrated and you'll be prone to bitterness and despair. But if you know God is your father, then you'll begin to do things not to meet the standard, but out of the standard already fulfilled in Jesus. And you'll discover things like giving. You know what giving does? Giving increases dependence. It, it is never a burden on my, ch my children to depend upon me. It's actually their joy to know that they can depend on me and be loved by me. You know, pray, praying increases intimacy. It's not a burden on my children uh, for them to come and want to talk to me. They're not like, I better go talk to my dad tonight. Sometimes they can't talk enough. Sometimes I have to even usher them off to bed because they won't stop wanting to spend time and talk with me because they know I will love them and accept them. You know what fasting is? Fasting is, not a, is a, a freedom to devote unique time to God. When my children get an alone day with me that I do once every quarter with them, it's never like, oh man, dad time today. That's like one of the few things that they look forward to and they want in the world. And you know why? Because of all those things, they don't want anything else. They want me because I'm their father. See, outside of the father relationship, everything, every spiritual practice is a burden and not a joy. But what the father does is it gives you something else beautiful. This is why J.I. Packer said this in Knowing God. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of their thought of being God's child and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and their whole outlook on life, it means that they do not understand Christianity very well at all. One of the most secure students that I've ever met, his name was Andrew. And I met Andrew his freshman year and watched him go, go through his entire college career and then got to be a part of watching him meet his wife and get engaged and then be the minister who did their wedding. And, I, and I've never forgotten Andrew's rehearsal dinner because everybody went around and did toasts and said things about he and his wife, Rachel. And it was really fun and we laughed. But then Andrew's father got up and told several stories uh, about how much fun he had enjoyed with him and memories he had. And I, I've never forgotten this. He stood in this room of about 70 people and he stood and he said, Andrew, I want you to know in front of all these people how proud I am of you and that you are one of my favorite people in this world. 
And there's not a heart in this room that doesn't need to hear that. You know, one day I really long for and hope you all can just get out of the game. Do you know what I mean? The, the reputation game where we do good things because for one reason, it just makes us look good or it makes us feel good. Oh, but always after a while, we just end up hating the good things. That's why in the middle of a semester, even something like our faith can just be one more burden. And it's never refreshing. It's never redeeming. It's never a way to reconnect and recalibrate. It's just one more exhausting thing. But just imagine for a moment, what if behind all of those things was just a loving father who he didn't want you just to do things he wanted to be with you and to know you? That wouldn't be a burden. That would be an invitation. And you need to take that right now. Amen.